Well, I didn't really know of my mum as a photographer. The house was crammed with paintings and drawings and there were only two photographs that I remember and they were both signed by Lee. One was called The Procession and it was some birds' footprints on ripples of sand. And the other was called On the Road and it was uh, an ox on a cart. My name's Anthony Penrose. I'm the founder and co-director of the Lee Miller Archives here at Farley's House and Gallery in East Sussex. And I really enjoyed these pictures. I didn't quite understand them, didn't have any background to them, but then everybody took pictures and did stuff, so I didn't think it was anything exceptional. As I grew up, little by little, I began to hear that Lee had had a career as a photographer, but it was mostly in reference to Man Ray. I had no idea the length and breadth and scope of her career until my late wife, Susanna, found the whole collection of her work stashed in the attic of this house. Hello there, welcome back. I'm Amy Buhessen. This time on the Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain podcast, I'm chatting with my dad, Anthony Penrose, about his parents and my grandparents, Lee Miller and Roland Penrose. Together, he and I direct the Lee Miller Archives, which works to conserve and disseminate her incredible legacy of work. We're recording this in Farley's, the home of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose, and it's still a working farm, so you'll have to excuse the sound of wildlife tweeting just outside our windows. Just to warn you, this episode contains mentions of the sexual abuse that Lee experienced in her early life. I started out my chat with Anthony by asking him about the early stages of founding Lee's archives and how it went from being found in the attic to touring the world in exhibitions. So you, Grandad Roland and Mum, founding the archives, after the first 10 years of kind of contact printing and sorting the jumble of manuscripts, how did you guys prioritise what you were going to archive next? When we started archiving, we learned very quickly it's an expensive process. And so we prioritized by working on the images that were going to earn us a return. Luckily, we had a lot of photographs of famous artists, like there's more than a thousand shots of Picasso. And they were good earners through copyright. And then eventually, Carol Callow, who was our photographic printer, became very good at producing fine prints. And these prints were then sold through the Photographer's Gallery and through Staley Wise Gallery in New York. And this gave us another income stream. And we just about kept ourselves going. And wasn't this also kind of what started exhibitions as well? Well, yes. We were fortunate in that we got our first big public exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery in London. And that was a huge event for us. We were just completely the new kids on the block and they were very kind to us and they looked after us really well and then after that there were many many other exhibitions in many different countries and in fact uh, over the last say 25 years there's been a Lee Miller exhibition on the wall somewhere in the world more or less continuously. I think what's really nice is that now that Lee's established as well don't you that to start off with we were doing mostly retrospective shows and war stuff and now because people know her we can do things like looking at her fashion work 
absolutely. And it's taken a while to get this far. I mean, to begin with, I had to spend an awful lot of time explaining who Lee Miller was. Things are different now because you, you know that we don't have to explain who Lee is now. What we've had is a slow incremental growth. And that for us has been really helpful because the research continues. And there are not many weeks that go past without us finding some new and interesting thing. Who was it that wrote to you a few weeks ago, recognizing their mum as being the cyclist in the Liberation of Paris picture? That sort of thing. Yeah, that was on Instagram. Yeah, and then we've just had an email from the guy whose dad was the GI standing behind Lee watching the siege of San Marlo. I mean, it's just amazing the way all this information still keeps coming well, in. Well, and actually with the fashion, with the fashion book, mm. When we did our first article about it, um, it came out in um, The Telegraph. I got a call on the Monday afterwards, and the lady was telling me that, the, the you know, the, the lady in the green suit that's in the fashion book, yes. where the Petersham woman, mm. yes, yes. That, that that's her mum. Oh, yes, and yes. she told me, there's a, like she, her mum is in that book about six or seven times, so now we have the name. Now of... we've ID'd her, yeah. It doesn't stop. This is what's so exciting, is that we're working with something that's alive all the time, you know, and, and people are contributing and it's meaningful to so many. And that, for me, is, is actually what helps to keep me going. One of the things that did help us with the fashion book and the research for it was looking through Lee's appointment diaries. <laughs> and and it just talks about who she was meeting, where, what shot she was doing and where they were. And and it makes you think, you know, while she's running around like a crazy person, what was Roland doing all this time? Well, it's interesting you should say that because Lee was, when she was on form, she was obsessively busy. Most people found it exhausting, but she found it exhilarating. Roland was much more relaxed. He was a more meditative sort of person and he liked quiet moments. And he liked walking in woodlands and staring at trees and things like that. Um, and what he was doing while Lee was tearing around like a fiend in London was actually running to start with the Home Guard camouflage unit and teaching the Home Guard how to hide themselves from the enemy in the case that we got invaded. Was this when he was an air raid warden too, or was that after? Roland started by becoming an air raid warden, and then he wanted something more useful to do in terms of the war effort. Being a Quaker, he wasn't going to start training as a fighting man. So he wanted a non-combatant role, and he and others, like Bill Hayter, Erno Goldfinger, and so on, invented a commercial camouflage company, which was designed to help factory owners hide their factories from enemy bombers. And then that got taken up by the War Office and Roland became an instructor for the Home Guard and toured all over Britain, teaching them how to hide from the enemy. So in essence, they were using their their artistic skills to actually design camouflage. When we look at the book that Roland wrote, which is the Home Guard Manual of Camouflage, we see lots of examples of how he mimics nature. And he was a very good naturalist, so he would look at the way birds' plumage and moths and butterflies were able to conceal themselves in their natural environment and make themselves less susceptible to being gobbled up by predators. 
And, and so he applied these lessons and also the lessons that he had learned as an artist about perspective and patterning and that sort of thing. He was actually in a funny sort of way, ideally placed to do this work. And he did it very well. In the fashion book, we've got this image of a male model in Vogue studios in camouflage. Was this something to do with Ronan's work as a camouflage lecturer? Yes, Lee was very supportive of Kat Ronan's work and she often photographed um, soldiers or people pretending to be soldiers who were all dressed up in camouflage gear with their faces covered in camouflage paint. And the idea was the incongruity of this person in Vogue studios was totally the antithesis to what the camouflage was trying to achieve. If she'd photographed him sitting behind a tree, that would have been a different thing. And she even got involved herself, didn't she, and modelled for some of his camouflage slides too. There was a marvellous spoof occasion in about 1943 when Roland obtained from, I think, Elizabeth Arden some newly made camouflage cream, which was supposed to be smeared all over your face and make you completely invisible. Anyway, he decided that if he could hide Lee, then he could hide anything. So she stripped naked, covered herself all over in this cream and lay in the garden in Hampstead with a artfully mounted piece of camouflage netting. And he had her photographed um, by David Sherman, who was their wartime buddy, time life photographer. And Roland had them made into lantern slides and he used them in his lectures to the troops. He wrote to Lee at one point, said, Darling, my pictures of you make my lectures the best attended on the camp. Some chaps come back two or three times. <laughs> it's good to see Lee and Roland finding likeness during what must have been a dark time in wartime London. I think Lee will have felt a great responsibility to present her experience back to her fellow Americans. In the first years of the war, America was still neutral, and prior to Pearl Harbor, there was a resistance to becoming embroiled in another European war. In an effort to help the Americans understand the situation in the UK, Lee was invited to be the main contributor to a soft propaganda book commissioned by the War Office and designed to appeal to them called Grim Glory, which portrayed the situation in London during the Blitz and the British keep calm and carry on spirit. It was a slim paperback book crammed with photographs, a little essay by Winston Churchill. It was small because it was designed to be easy to send or to put in your backpack as you went off to war. It was designed to be cheap to produce. It was designed to be very graphic. The cover was that fabulous picture of St. Paul's Cathedral dome with smoke all around it from the fires, from the bombing. And immediately it had a tremendous rapport. I think there were at least five British reprints, but more importantly than anything, it went to America where it was published under the title Bloody But Unbowed. It was a Again, immediately a tremendous success, very widely distributed, and exactly what the British Ministry of Information wanted. I think it's kind of crazy that we've got this prolific amount of fashion work that Lee's doing in 1940 and 1941, and at the same time she's working on this major book and 
an exhibition that's with, with Ernestine, isn't it? I think most photographers know that you have to work on several things at once and shooting the fashion gave Lee the resources. It gave her travel. It gave her the reason to be poking around in London, taking all the wacky, wonderful photographs she did. It gave her the film stock and the processing. And while she was going around looking for shots for grim glory she would also be spotting locations for the fashion shoots that she was going to do in the street because maybe the studios had been bombed out or there was no electricity or whatever so the two assignments and probably more than two sat together perfectly comfortably and i mean the book is 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 beautiful but it's i always thought it was kind of odd initially until i realized that it's because she was american and they couldn't name probably name the other photographers that she's not the only photographer in the book but she's the main contributor i mean she says pictures by brant and beaton in the book as well um but she's the only photographer lee's the only photographer that gets credit well i think you've touched on it by the fact that she was american and obviously they wanted the witness of, of one of their own people to be the most prominent. But that doesn't take away the fact that her photographs were, I think, so exceptional and they would have been in there on their own merit if whatever she had been, whatever nationality. Of course, one of those that really championed Lee's talent was Audrey Withers, the editor at British Vogue. So Audrey Withers came to Farley's several times when you were a kid. What do you remember of her? I remember Audrey as being very kind, very elegant, very gentle person. Of course, I had no idea what an incredibly towering intellect she had and what an enormously important person in Lee's life and Lee in her life. I never understood any of that until much later. Audrey arrived fairly close to the beginning of Farley's and she brought Lee and Roland a present, which was two tumbler pigeons. Now, Roland really wanted to have tumbler pigeons because they, when they fly, they do aerobatics. They fly up to quite a height and then they fall, flipping over and over and over and again. And he loved them, but he couldn't find any to buy. But Audrey found him a pair. And she turned up with this wicker basket with these lovely pigeons looking a bit nervous and shy didn't um audrey say something at lee's funeral or a remembrance thing as well i met up with audrey several times in later life and one of them was shortly after we'd published lee miller's war in 1992 and audrey gave the most wonderful talk on lee at the ica because we had a concurrent exhibition at the ica with the book and Audrey was there. She spoke so eloquently, so kindly, so passionately. And she had this rectitude for the truth. Very elegant, very kindly done. But she was not going to suffer an inaccuracy for one second. And I really admired that and respected it enormously. In Lee's appointment diary, she's got a shoot date for when she photographs the legendary war correspondent Margaret Bourke White. And that's on the 5th of October, 1942. And like, I've, I love the fact that just in, in the shoot, it's not just a portrait. She totally goes into 
Margaret's kit bag and how she wraps her clothes and packs her bags and even takes pictures of her cleaning her camera lenses. And then later that month, on the 23rd of October, Margaret goes to Lee's house for dinner. So they, they knew each other already, didn't they? Lee and Margaret Burke-White knew each other when Lee had her New York studio in 1933. And in fact, when Lee married Aziz, Burke-White gave Lee a wedding present of one of her photographs of the Sierra Madre, which was a wonderful gift. It just goes to show actually how, you know, that those, those two women were close. They were two young photographers, young women photographers, stepping out in New York. And... Uh, that friendship remained. Now, Lee was the kind of person that learnt by doing. And so when she was busy photographing Margaret's kit, of course, Lee was looking. Ah, oh, right. This is how you do it when you're going to work in the field. I was, I was going to say, do you think that there's, it's no coincidence that, you know, th two months later, Lee becomes a war correspondent herself. Meeting Burke White certainly would have crystallised Lee's interest in becoming a war correspondent in her own right. I mean, I can't say that it was cause and effect, but it was probably one of the many things that made Lee realise, yeah, well, if she can do it, maybe I can too. Was Lee very fashionable? Fashion and Lee is interesting. One of the keys to it is that as a child of seven years old, she was raped and in that moment infected with venereal disease, with gonorrhea. I think that left a psychological scar on her. It can't have not done something like that. PTSD. It must have damaged her self-esteem. And I think part of her compensation for this was to use fashions as a way of changing her appearance, changing her skin, if you like, so that she could be glamorous and beautiful and sought after instead of being the damaged goods that she may well have felt that she was. Fashion remained incredibly important to her right through her life, but it was not an obsession. It was not something she had to do because later in life, when I knew her as a kid, she was the scruffiest dresser that you could imagine. You know, a dreadful pair of old slacks and a bulky top and sometimes a sort of thick woolly sweater if it was cold. It, it, it seemed like she didn't care what she looked like most of the time. But she could pull it out of the bag for exhibition openings and things though, couldn't she? If there was an opening, it was a total change and she would trot off and there'd be endless going to dress shops. And <laughs> then she would show up at the opening, not without a huge amount of drama, and look absolutely knockout she would be the head turner of the ball you know she really was um but everybody recognized that except she kept some though didn't she she certainly kept some more than i ever understood because you know i was going through all of this stuff and clothes don't mean a lot to me and so i bundled them all up left them in their suitcases and then you and the others came along and suddenly we find we've got these amazing things, you know, sort of very first ever bikini and that sort of stuff. It's absolutely fascinating, not in, only in the terms of finding photographs of her wearing these items, but also realising their place in the history of fashion. I'm finding that absolutely wonderful. Um, one of the things we've got still 
is that kind of fleecy waistcoat that she seems to have worn a lot when you were little. Well, I remember the fleecy waistcoat with affection, actually. It was rather fun. And on occasion, she'd put it on inside out and pretend to be a sheep. But, <laughs> but there were other things. She kept her combat boots and she used to put them on and go stumping around the garden with them. Gosh, I wish we still had them today. But there were there were other things like that. There was a sort of filthy old military jacket, her jeep coat or something, which we still have. That didn't get thrown away, but she wore that quite a lot in the winter. In the winter, it was very cold in this house. We didn't have central heating at all. And so she would be rugged up with all kinds of her winter combat gear and stuff like that. <laughs> Last episode, I spoke to Hilary Roberts about Lee and Roland ending up under surveillance by the MI5. It turns out that there were a couple more connections with spies in their circle. I remember you telling me about, you know, these crazy parties that Lee and Roland had sometimes in, in Hampstead in London during the war, and that later they found out that some of the people there were spies. Like, what what was the story? Well... Of course, I wasn't around at that time. This was before I was born. But David Sherman was there and he told me that some of the people who were guests at the party and having having a great time there in Lee and Roland's Hampstead house were actually found to be spies. I'm pretty sure that Anthony Blunt would have been among them. Now, Blunt was a Brit and he was a very, very good art historian. He became really important at the Courtauld and wrote books and so on on, on, on art um, and and he was a spy he spied for the Russians hang on he was a spy for the how did Lee and Roland know him in the first place well Blunt would have been part of the left-wing intelligentsia which was of course Lee and Roland and they all had a common bond which was the hatred of fascism that came up out of the Spanish Civil War during the Spanish Civil War, there were people in Britain who were outraged at the British policy of non-intervention. They just let Franco do what he wanted. The only nation that stood against Hitler and fascism in general were the Russians. And so a lot of the bright young people of Cambridge and other places aligned themselves with the Russians. There are many instances of this. And Blunt actually... I think he went to work for MI6 or MI5, I can't remember which one it was, but he was passing military secrets to Moscow and he could have seriously destroyed the Normandy landings because he let the Russians know that our conspicuous intention to land in the Pas de Calais was just a, was a decoy and the real landing was going to be in Normandy. Now, if there had been a German double agent in Moscow, that secret would have got out and our Normandy landing would have been violently opposed and it would have been an absolute bloodbath more than it was. So, yeah, he did endanger people. But, that God, that could have been awful. That could have been absolutely terrible. And then, so, like, when did he get outed? I mean, when was this, the 60s? No, no, Blunt did not get outed until Thatcher outed him. And it was thought that Blunt was hiding here at Farley's. And so we had journalists camping outside in the road. And it was it was really ridiculous. 
whilst they will never have known about her brushes with the security services, and after all, we only found out about the MI5 files in 2010, her parents will have been really worried about her. In Robin Muir's episode, he mentioned a letter she wrote describing living during the Blitz, talking about working with the neighbouring buildings still smouldering, the fire hoses still up the staircases, the stink of cordite, and having to wade barefoot to get into Vogue's offices. So... What do, what do you think that Florence and Theo, her parents, thought of her staying in the UK? They hated it. I mean, wouldn't you hate it if your daughter was in a war zone? I know I would. Um, mm. And I think they recognised very early on how incredibly stubbornly it was. They, <laughs> they knew that. They entreated her to come back, but they knew damn well they, that, that she wasn't going to because she she had a commitment to the war. She was not going to sit idly by while her closest, dearest friends in Paris were under the German occupation. And she even gets quite upset, doesn't she, I think, in one of her letters after France has fallen. Well, yes. You can tell how close she feels to... Paris and France in particular. And of course, being part of the fashion industry, she would have known how many people in the fashion world were Jewish. And I think she was fearful as to what was going to happen to, to all of these people, let alone her surrealist friends who were obvious targets. But did, did Theo ever talk to you about Lee's photography or fashion work at all? It was almost like there was a conspiracy of silence among Lee's family um, that they they didn't talk about it. They didn't talk about her that much. Yeah, so, I mean, she did reinvent herself and try and convince everybody to forget about her life as a photographer when she reinvented herself as a as a gourmet cook. But at the same time, she blooming hid her whole lot in the attic. So she must have realised there was some kind of importance around it. I think she certainly understood the historical significance of her work. You know, she'd been, during the war, she'd been a witness to the Blitz, to the liberation of Europe, liberation of the concentration camps, and all the dreadful things that happened in Eastern Europe afterwards. I mean, yes, historically, I think she understood the importance of the work, and she had a very, very strong sense of history. But what she didn't want to do was be the person that managed this collection. She had no idea that we were going to discover it and dedicate so much of our lives to managing it. But, you know, I guess we all got lucky. Leafing through this fashion book is a wonderful experience for me. It made me realise that we're not done yet. We still keep finding work in the archive that we could put together and make different things that are meaningful out of. Look, we've never done a show on Egypt. We haven't done a show on Romania or Hungary yet. We've got all that stuff yet to come. No, we ain't through yet. Lee's got plenty more ways of keeping us busy. Tell me about it. Well, thank you, Anthony, for coming on the podcast to talk about your memories of your parents, Lee and Roland. Before we finished up, I asked him if he had a favourite from the book. I've got lots of favourite images, but one of the ones that I really like is actually 
the shot of Lee photographing the hat model. Not because the hat model is particularly fascinating, but because I just love the process. And so in the book, you've got the picture of the shoot, and then you've got the shot itself. And I think that that juxtaposition of those two images, that just brings it back to me how damn difficult it is to get a really lasting, engaging image. And that's, that's how she did it with that great big clunky camera. And in heels. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's the daft thing. She was wearing heels, wasn't she? Oh, dear. What is your favourite all-time Lee Miller picture? Well, nothing has changed since I first saw it. And it's the photograph called Portrait of Space. It's a fly screen that's being torn to reveal a view of the desert. The metaphors in that image are absolutely wonderful. If you look closely at the rock hillside in the distance, it looks like there are eyes looking back. And we realize in that moment that Lee, as an expatriate, was probably constantly being watched by the secret police. So wherever she went, there were eyes. And so in the sky, you've got this cloud that's like a bird flying freely. And there's a road that maybe takes us off into the distance to escape from all of this oppression. I tried to find that spot in the desert, in the Siwa Desert. But the sand has shifted and the road is in a different place now. And I couldn't find it. But I'm going to go back one day, find out where it is. In our next and final episode, we look forward to fashion photography today. And I talk with the contemporary fine art, fashion and vogue photographer, Vivian Sasson, discussing what's changed since Lee's time. This episode was presented by me, Amy Buhazen, and my guest was my dad, Anthony Penrose, the son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose, and the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives. It was produced by Tolly Robinson, and the soundtrack was licensed from DeWolf Music. The copyright of the episode is copyright the Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved. The series was made possible from public funding awarded to us from the DCMS Culture Recovery Fund by the Arts Council England. Thank you.